Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. So if necessity is the mother of invention, then a global pandemic must be the crazy uncle of changing your musty ways (laughs) or the cranky grandmother of finally getting around doing what you know you should be doing or the irritatingly precocious nephew of, you know you could download an app that does half your job or the churlish niece of what is it you do again exactly? Uh, I think I've tortured that enough. This is part one of our discussion about the challenges facing the nation's court system. In this episode, we speak with attorney and litigator Diana Manning of Bressler, Amory, and Ross in New Jersey about significant court backlogs or backlogs clogging the judicial system across the nation. Then in part two, we get insights from Louisiana State Judge, the Honorable Scott Schlegel, who has made a serious effort to modernize his courtroom to create greater efficiencies. And it's those kind of efficiencies that will help address the backlog I will speak with Diana Manning about in this episode. For a number of reasons, the already tremendous pressure on trial lawyers, judges, plaintiffs, defendants, and court systems, it's only only intestinal. It's only intensifying. Take New Jersey as an example where the backlog of cases nearly quadrupled in the year between February 20 and and 21. That's the first year of the pandemic. According to New Jersey Spotlight News, the state is also facing a historic shortage of jurists, quote, leading to overworked judges, huge case backlogs, and nearly 7,000 defendants in jail without bail. The business closures and high unemployment led to a housing crisis that resulted in more than 46,000 pending cases that involved landlord-tenant issues. The paper goes on to say that, but with all courts open and staff back to work in person, it's impossible to eliminate the backlog of cases with so many open judge seats. That problem is attributed to the state Senate, where the process is reportedly bogged down, even though the governor is making appointments. According to the National Council for State Courts, about one-third of U.S. courts saw an increase in over 5% in backlogs. The National Council for State Courts says the backlog would have been even greater had courts not adopted virtual appearances. According to the Court Statistic Project database, the, uh, the numbers reveal, in stark terms, the, the impact the pandemic had on the year it came to America. The number of dispositions in 2012 was 48 million. In 2020, it was less than 30 million. Bench trials, there are 2.24 million of them in 2012 and less than 2 million in 2020. Jury trials took a big hit. There were 46,000 in 2012, went up to 49,000 in 2019. In 2020, it was less than 19,000. The Washington Post covered the story saying, quote, when the pandemic struck, the impact on the courts was immediate and far-reaching. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court declared a statewide judicial emergency and extended filing deadlines. Virginia's Supreme Court issued an order suspending non-essential proceedings in circuit and district courts. The Iowa Supreme Court announced that it was pushing back criminal trials while Alabama Supreme Court suspended in-person court proceedings, end quote. Last year in New Jersey, the Supreme Court Chief Justice Stuart Rabner warned that the judicial shortage, quote, comes with a price. Well, what did he mean by that? Listen to my interview with Diana C. Manning, Managing Principal at Bressler, Amory, and Ross, for insights into the impact these backlogs have had and 
what the forced adoption of virtual hearings and trials taught us about how we might speed up the judicial process, and more urgently, what the whole uh, ordeal taught us about how we might dig out of the hole created by the pandemic, by court vacancies and, and other factors. Diana has more than two decades' experience in complex commercial litigation. She's co-chair of Bressler's Business and Commercial Litigation Practice Group. She spearheads the firm's appellate practice team. Diana's distinguished career has brought her honors from many professional and legal industry organizations. Diana earned her JD from Rutgers University School of Law. Again, in this episode, we'll talk about the backlog and some ways to address it. Then I'll speak with Judge Schlegel about his quest to modernize the court system. And you know, if he had his way, maybe uh, none of this would have been a problem in the first place. I'm speculating, but I think I'm right. And now, here's my interview with Diana Manning of Bressler, Amory, and Ross. I hope you enjoy it. Diana Manning, thank you very much for doing this today. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It's great to be here. So we can jump into our first question. You know, we're talking about a stretched court system and uh, the, pr- the pressure that that's putting on the courts and those who practice. So what, um, what is the impact that this is having on trial attorneys? Let's start with them first. Well, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. Um, you know, access to justice is pivotal uh, for our system to work. And right now, um, New Jersey is having a twofold problem. Uh, there's a shortage of judges. There's a, a historic amount of vacancies. And there's a tremendous backlog as a result of the pandemic. So um, it is. It is very frustrating. Um, it's very difficult to explain to clients uh, why they can't have their day in court um, or why it has to be different than they want it to be. And, you know, I, I think that along with the rest of, of the country, uh, lawyers are definitely suffering from, from burnout and, and stress from all of this. The other aspect of this is on our newer attorneys. Um, it's very, very difficult right now to get into court or to get any kind of meaningful experience. So there's definitely a concern, um, you know, that we're going to have, uh, you know, cla- classes of newer lawyers who are a little bit behind where they would have been if we didn't have this situation. Right. I think I read somewhere among the people who are most miserable in their jobs, it's law firm associates. <laughs> I don't know where I read that, but I know, I know I did. And I just know that law firm associates typically have a lot of stress anyway, you know, on a good day. Yes. Yes. So what impact you, you know, what potential outcomes are there? What, how does this manifest itself? Um, are attorneys with, with the stress, I mean, are they making more mistakes or, or what do you think? I think that most people are, don't have the patience they normally have. I mean, I think that you have a lot of situations where, you know, your back and forth with adversaries takes on a harsher tone than you would normally expect. Um, There's a lot more email traffic, which creates stress. Um, You know, one of the things that I think came out of this, but not just for lawyers, but certainly for lawyers is the default is just to send emails or texts rather than pick up the phone. Typically, that doesn't really make <laughs> doesn't make answering the inquiry or the question easier. There tends to be a lot of 
back and forth where you probably could have just talked something through in a minute or two. Um, so I think that everybody has a shorter fuse right now. And I think that uh, there's just a lot of frustration um, and there's a tremendous pressure from the courts to settle cases. My areas of practice is, is legal malpractice. And when when a client doesn't feel that they've had their day in court, they're more likely to second guess their decision. So the pressure to settle on the parties and on the lawyers, you know, is certainly something that can in the future, and I guess we'll have to see, open lawyers up to more claims from people who just really feel that they were pressured into settling. And I think that, you know, on the flip side, the, the judges have, have all said, you know, they have a tremendous, tremendous backlog. And they have a point that, you know, a lot of times it is better for the parties to resolve the matter themselves in a way where the people are equally unhappy or equally happy with the resolution. What we like to say is, you know, you know, you have a good settlement when each party is equally unhappy with what they had to had to give up. But I think that the pressure on everyone to settle does a little bit of a disservice. And right now, I think that trial attorneys are a little dismayed. We're back to the point where numerous cases are being called in for a trial date, even though the courts know they won't have judges, or maybe some counties only have one or two judges. And it is intended to try to get the parties to focus on settling. But what that really means, if you're a trial attorney, is that you spend, depending on the size of the case, weeks, weekends, nights, preparing for a case. And you kind of suspect if there's only going to be one or two judges that it's not going to be your case that's going to go. And that failure to have a set trial date really causes a lot of stress uh, for trial attorneys, especially in state court. In federal court, it's very different. You know, you do have a set trial date. You know that you're going to go. In state court, you know, you end up going to a calendar call and you don't really know if you're going to get a judge and you don't really know you can be held for days, which causes more stress because you can lose the witnesses that you've had to line up. It really is a, you know, a cascading problem. And right now in, in many of these counties, the backlog has just become tremendous. And, and that is really one of the tools that the courts can use is saying, okay, we're going to call you all in and maybe half of you are going to settle. But like I said, for the parties, I think it's very important that they feel that they had the experience that they were hoping to have, which isn't to say that every case should get tried. In fact, most cases don't. I believe the latest studies say about 2% of cases actually get tried. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of them is the expense. I mean, if you have a lawyer who's preparing over and over again for an upcoming trial, that costs the client additional fees for the preparation. Right. And so it really is having a negative impact, you know, all the way around. You have you have unsatisfied clients. They don't want to keep paying for prep. But as someone who tries cases, you know, if, if a couple of months go by, you do have to prepare again. You know, you, you need to be completely familiar with your case when you go in to try it. It definitely is a challenge right now. I don't think that anybody, including the courts, are happy about the situation that we're in. So you mean to tell me that people will go to 
they'll line up for trial. They'll have everybody ready, witnesses and all of this stuff. They'll go, and then they may not even have the judge may not even have time for it. Sure. I mean, what typically happens in state court in New Jersey is most of the counties, uh, for the smaller counties, may have one or two judges. So I, I try civil cases. They may have one or two judges sitting in civil, as we would say, and maybe they'll call 20 cases in. So just by the numbers, you know that 20 cases aren't going to go because they don't have a judge for every case. It's like flying on standby. Yes, that's exact. That's a, a terrific analogy. It is exactly like that. It's very frustrating. It's something that trial attorneys complained about prior to the pandemic, and certainly people are complaining about it now because everybody is very much aware that there's a, a order of priority, which which makes sense. Uh, the criminal cases have to have priority because you're talking about the right to a speedy trial, and you have people who might be waiting in jail while they're waiting for their day in court. Right. So the criminal cases certainly have to have priority. Um, there's a tremendous backlog now in landlord-tenant, and there's a huge backlog in the family part. I mean, in some counties, the courts are basically telling folks that they may not get a, a trial in a divorce matter or a custody matter for four or five years. Good God. So- you know, you when when you think about the impact on the individuals, it's tremendous. I mean, if you're in the middle of trying to get divorced, if you're in the middle of a custody dispute, you know, these things are critical to your life and the the, the backlog is just tremendous. What caused the, the lack of judges before COVID? Some of this is uh you know speculation on my part. There's always a certain amount of vacancies, and I think that a lot of judges or a fair amount have decided to retire early. I think the stress of the pandemic, you know, what happens with lawyers and with judges and with other people in the world, many people have just decided they don't want to do the job that they right, right. did before. Um, it is it is no longer satisfying, and the stress on the courts is tremendous. You know, everybody had to pivot to technology. It took a while for everyone to get used to having to do all of these things on Zoom or over the phone. The job really changed. Uh, you know, one of the, the things about being a judge, if you have people coming into your courtroom, you're interacting with the lawyers, you're interacting with the litigants, you're running a trial, you're interacting with your staff. It's very, especially if you're a criminal judge or a family court judge. I would think that the the toll mm -hmm. that dealing with these significant issues takes on you is a lot. And I think a lot of people have decided, you know, that they either want to retire or they want to go back to private practice. And so there's right now an historic amount of openings on in the New Jersey court system. I think the, no, I mean, the most recent number is probably around 65. And there's about 20 other judges who may retire in in this calendar year. Wow. You know, when you add that to the backlog, you have judges who, in depending on what part they're sitting in, dealing with thousands of motions every other week and, you know, multiple hearings. So, you know, fortunately, I think things are starting to move mm -hmm. and the governor's office has definitely responded. They are cooperating and nominating people and the, the vetting process is happening. But you know, that's where we are right now. So when you couple, you couple these two things, you couple 
really that for a, a brief period of time, the court system was shut down, although very impressive, you know, they it really got us to speed very quickly in very impressive way. They've certainly moved, you know, tons of cases. The courts were not closed. It just was, it is much more challenging to get before a judge given the volume. I mean, I can't help but think about are people going to mediate more or can courts, I'm assuming the courts have budgets for these judges. Can they have, I don't know if, if they'd be special masters or magistrate judges or, or whatever. I don't know what the word would be, but you know, does, does that happen? Do, do attorneys end up saying, you know, it, if you want a quicker resolution, we should just mediate it or sure. But or, or do the courts look at alternative personnel? Many of the parties decide to mediate themselves. There is a mediation program through the court system. And then oftentimes, you know, the parties will decide to mediate themselves. There's certainly an option to go to a private arbitration. And there are a lot of retired judges who are private arbitrators. And if you can afford to do that, um, a lot of the parties are. So it works to the advantage of people who have the wherewithal to pay to have a judge resolve their dispute as opposed to using the court system where you're just paying for your lawyers. So I would say, you know, it's not equal access to everybody who's trying to use the system because not everyone can afford to do that. But mediation is is very, very common. But, you know, a lot of cases typically settle on the courthouse steps. Even if you have mediated, maybe you've made progress. And, you know, there is something about preparing and gearing up to go to trial that really crystallizes it for people and tends to engender resolutions, which is why I think the courts are getting back to calling people in, because that is something that does cause cases to settle. But like I said, it, there is a, as a practitioner, there's a push-pull there because you do want everyone to feel like they are satisfied, at least with the process. And if they feel that they were pressured to settle, that doesn't is not what happens. So let's talk about uh, the future. What what do you think trials should or, or will look like in, in the years to come? So I do think that the pandemic has forced everyone to become proficient with technology in a way that didn't exist before. And I think there will be a lot of benefits out of that. You know, I do think that it is important for certain cases to be tried in person. It's important for that to happen. But I do think that there is a place in the system for virtual trials, if that's appropriate. And I think in many instances, the lawyers and the parties agree that it's appropriate. I also think that it will allow more witnesses to testify, perhaps live, but over, uh, over Zoom or over some other technology. Um, that was something that was was literally groundbreaking right before the pandemic. A case came out where a witness was allowed to testify live from India, and I and it got a lot of press because it was something that was so unusual. And I don't think that that will be that unusual anymore. I think that we'll be able to accommodate certain situations and have have trials go forward, and not necessarily have all the witnesses be in person. One of the things that New Jersey is doing in a lot of counties is having virtual jury selection, 
or at least the beginning part of jury selection is over Zoom. You don't have to have everybody come in. And then when the jury, when the final selections are made, then the jurors come to court and then they come to court for the trial. People have varying opinions on that, but there's certainly an appeal to being able to do that remotely and not have everybody have to come in to go through jury selection. So I think that we're going to see an increased use in technology. I think we're also going to see an increased use in technology in terms of trial attorneys presenting their case. You know, we're all used to now seeing things and people learn in different ways. Some people learn when you show them something in text, some people learn by listening, some people need to see something visually. And I think trial attorneys will be using more visuals than we probably did in the past because everybody's gotten very familiar with the technology. So I do think that being forced to learn how to use all this technology and to do all these different things will ultimately make some aspects of the trial easier. Yeah. I just did a um, a podcast on on the ethical requirements for attorneys to be proficient with technology too. So I wonder if th- this all will make attorneys, you know, have to raise the bar for them um, to become more acquainted with, with, uh, you know, practicing virtually. What has this taught, uh, taught us, you know, having virtual hearings, I, I guess, what, what might work better and maybe what doesn't work so well? I just had this conversation with someone the other day. There, there's there's two different skill sets. Um, I think to be effective live is something that people who try cases, you know, it took years to learn how to do that and to learn how to be persuasive and to present in a courtroom, especially to jurors or to a judge. And I think that it's completely a different skill set when you're doing something over Zoom how to be effective over Zoom, how to, you know, things that you can do live that are effective don't necessarily have that same impact over Zoom. In fact, there's a lot of articles and books of how to be effective and how to have a presence over Zoom. And I think that that's very, very different than trying a case in person. You know, I think that most trial attorneys agree that the cases need to be tried in in person. Um, and even arguments. I mean, it takes on a very, very different feel having an argument over Zoom. You can sort of tell in certain instances. At the beginning of the pandemic, I argued an appeal and we did it over the telephone. Um, now, in person, you know, the judges can see you, you know that they're going to ask a question or they're going to interrupt you. That's not something that that you can really do over the telephone. And you could tell that some of the attorneys were actually reading their remarks, which isn't something that you would do live. I think that that for an appellate argument, it's much more effective, at least over Zoom and certainly in person, when you can see the judge's facial expressions as you're making an argument or maybe anticipate uh, something that they might be troubled with. I do think that most people, and I don't mean for daily stuff, you know, a case management conference, or basically, you know, some of the 
the more routine functions that we do. I think lawyers appreciate being able to do them over Zoom or doing them over the phone. It avoids having to travel. It avoids having to park. It avoids having to wait unnecessarily. It saves the clients money because the lawyers don't have to do all of those things. Um, You you pretty much know what time you're going to go. And so I think that there's a lot of things that we will keep and that will add and make people's lives easier. But in terms of of actually trying a case, most people, and I certainly feel this way, that we want to do in person. You think judges should use emojis, uh, like an eye roll? (laughs) No. You know, I've actually done entire seminars on emojis um, (laughs) and emoticons. Uh, And it is something that Um, judges and lawyers have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. I think that the problem with emojis and and some of it is generational. It is. You don't necessarily know what the meaning is of of each (laughs) one that you use. And there's so many now that, um, I thought it was, you know, you don't really know chocolate ice cream. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't think that judges should use emojis, um, in a professional setting, but you know, that that's also one of the issues with using technology is, is actually having to make sure that you know, who's in the room and you know, what's going on and you know, what, witnesses are looking at and you know you know you know that they're not they don't have you know sort of notes in front of them or that someone's coaching them and that's something that everybody's had to deal with you know not only in trials but also in depositions and all those types of things because it's so easy to be participating on you know your iPad but playing on your phone and or reading messages or doing multiple things at one time right and so I think a lot of a lot of people who have involved in the court system, one of the drawbacks of doing things over tech is you've had judges talk about how they've had, you know, witnesses or jurors are driving in the car or yep. they're babysitting their grandchildren mm-hmm. or they're playing with their dog or, you know, they're eating lunch. So I mean that's not something that would happen when you were live. As hard as it is to keep everybody's attention when we all right now have the attention span of a gnat, um, it is harder when you're not also controlling the environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can see the tremendous upside because the people are used to consuming things and hearing stories through their screens. Um, On the other hand, you know, people can, like you said, sit there, they could be texting their sister-in-law about whatever. And um, I don't know why I picked a sister-in-law. Oh, because she happened to be here the other day. But you know, <laughs> but the, people can just do all kinds of things and get, and get distracted. And yeah, I have heard those stories too. Somebody was, I think one juror was out shopping with his kids and, <laughs> and uh, kind of going through the, through the aisles. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's like anything. There's just so many things. The un, the uninteresting answer is it's really about balance. I guess some things are going to be better in person. Some things are going to be better. Some things can be great uh, online, but that is something that attorneys, that it will be a new skill. And I think you mentioned that it's generational. I think that's absolutely right. You know, my girls are approximately 30 now and they never knew a world when there wasn't a mouse or texting or email and things like that. So, um, and that generation often prefers to text. Uh, and you mentioned that earlier because not everybody is, um, 
has the nuances down in in written communication. Um, never mind using the wrong emoji. They'll just use the wrong words, or it'll sound like they're being abrupt or curt or something, and and they're not. So it's really easy to misunderstand each other. Uh, that way. Exactly. Yeah. You don't really text in full sentences. No. Um, you know, and that used to be an issue with email. Now email, I know the younger younger folks find email to be so antiquated, but at least in email, you're more likely to have full sentences. But that, you know, one of the issues is certainly tone. Um, you think you're joking in an email, maybe, you know, in person, you can say it and people can see that you're smiling or laughing or winking as you say it. And that falls flat uh, in email and text for sure. I, I find myself amusing, so I'll just go ahead and say something. What the hell do you mean by that? I'm like, oh my god! I have an overuse of the smiling emoji, which I never thought I would use. But no, that's absolutely right. I mean, fights can break out, and people get on the phone. It's a whole different thing. Um, so I think it will be. It'll be generational, also. I do note too that you know, with certain technology, you can, um, for example. Go to meeting and maybe WebEx does this too, but other platforms that aren't Zoom, um, they, they have ways of telling whether you're paying attention. And, um, I wonder if that's going to be something that's used more. And I mean, they don't at this point measure or they don't watch your eyeballs. I know that technology exists. So you can tell what somebody's looking at on the screen. But I think with something like go to meeting, it knows that you're on other windows. Um, and really? yeah, you even get a rating. You can see when you're doing a webinar that your audience is only 40% paying attention. Um, <laughs> that's always, that's always discouraging. <laughs> that's when I use a frown emoji. Well, Diana Manning, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Tom. That concludes this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. If you have any questions about anything you heard on the podcast or would like to participate, please write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is a co-production of HB Litigation and Critical Legal Content, my companies, and Fastcase, and our friends at Law Street Media, David Nair, Editor-in-Chief. This is also the audio companion to the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, published by Fastcase, Full Court Press. Tom Hagee, Editor-in-Chief. Morgan Wright, Publisher. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. That's why I'm talking, and I don't know if it needs to be said, but this is not legal advice. Unless telling you it's not legal advice is legal advice, although I'd argue it's just plain common sense. Thanks for listening. Give us a rating, share with friends. See you on the next episode.